hey, Christian, you might be praying for something that God won't do, something that no amount of begging, pleading, or effort can convince him to do. If you're frustrated, exhausted, or worried, it might come down to what you believe about any one of five things I'm about to reveal. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, helping you shut down the lies and struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life. I'm here to do it with the live online audience every Thursday at 8 p.m. Central. Join us sometime, will you? Would love to have you at kylewinkler.org slash live. Also, wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button so that you're in the know of our latest show. Okay. God is almighty. He's all powerful. I hope you know that. That means he has the strength and ability to do whatever he wants. He's also good. Hope you know that too. And because he's good, the Bible says that he cannot lie. He has to stay true to his character. So all of this means that there are things that God can't do, things that he won't do. Not because he doesn't have the ability to, but because he has bound himself to his word. In his goodness, God has decided to limit himself so that he will never contradict or change his mind about a promise. Not for anything. Not for anything on his end. Not for anything on your end. No matter how hard you try or how hard you fall, because of God's character, There are just some things God won't do, and I'm going to reveal five of them. Five of the biggest things that God won't do for Christians, for you. Ready for the first one? First thing God won't do is God won't disown you. You're a child of God. You know, that's what Jesus came to make you. Look at John 1.12. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. The Apostle Paul said this too, a few places really, but specifically to the Romans, he said that when you believed, you received the spirit of adoption that made you sons and daughters of God. That's Romans 8.15. Well, there are aspects about being a child of God that are like being a child of a human of your birth parent. And there are aspects that are very different. And both are good news for you. So let's go through what's similar first. In this verse here from John, he goes on in verse 13 to say, they are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. In other words, when you placed your faith in Jesus, you were remade spiritually by God. Paul called it becoming a new person. You didn't just get a Jesus label slapped on you. You didn't just get new clothing. This wasn't about putting lipstick on a pig. This is about an entire regeneration, an identity change. In his letters, Paul says your sin nature was cut out of you and you received the nature of God. 
And that's how you being a child of God relates to you being a child of your birth parents, by no choice of your own. Because of nothing you did, you have their nature, for better or worse. This is reflected in all kinds of ways, from your physical features to the sound of your voice to your personality. You know, my dad is five foot five. My mom is five foot zero. I got two extra inches on my dad. I'm five foot seven. Not exactly tall. So more than any of my other brothers, they're all just a little bit taller than me. I got my height from my parents. Now, I would have rather got my height from a taller person, but I got the color of their skin and their hair too. And I could squint and squeeze and hope and wish. And none of that will change about me. My parents' DNA is in me, and it can't be separated from me. And that's the same for you and your birth parents, too. And it's the same for you and God. Since being a child of God is about regeneration and not about a covering or a label, you can't do anything to add or subtract God's nature from you. You can't do anything to slip out of it. You are his and he is yours. Now, you might be saying, yeah, but despite my DNA, my birth parents can still give me up. They can still kick me out. They can still refuse me inheritance. They can still disown me. And sadly, some of them have and some of them do. And this is where being a child of God differs from being a child of a human. Going back to John 1.12, he says, all who believed, he gave the right to become children of God. The word right is a clue. And so is Paul's illustration of adoption as sons and daughters in Romans 8.15. You see, in Bible times, the idea of adoption is different than it is today. It's also called sonship back then. It wasn't about a child of one parent being given to a different parent. It was about a child being selected to immediately receive the rights, the inheritance, and the authority of a family. Often a birth father adopted his own son, gave his own son the rights. That's why it's also called sonship. And by doing so, it was the ultimate stamp of approval. At that point, the son immediately shared in ownership of everything the father had, all the wealth, all the livestock, all the property. And this was irrevocable, which is why it was also such a serious and big deal. When the decision was made, it could not be undone. So this is what both John and Paul illustrated happened to you when you believed. Not only did God recreate you into a new person that shares his nature, but he also gave you the rights of his family, which includes irrevocable acceptance and unchangeable approval. Now, of course, God might not care for everything that you do, but he decided that what you do no longer defines you. It can no longer defile you. He decided that nothing can convince him to disown you. He decided that you are his forever. Now, that brings me to the second thing that God won't do for you. He won't get any closer to you. No matter how much we beg him to in our modern worship songs. You can sing, come Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit fall. 
with as much passion as you can muster, and he's not going to get any closer to you, and it's not because you're dirty and sinful and awful. It's actually because you're clean and complete, and he's already in you. You know, I said this in my teaching on the five lies about the Holy Spirit, but the truth that the Holy Spirit lives inside of believers is one of the things, if not the main thing, that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. We aren't people of the book. We aren't people of the rules. We are people of the Spirit. Paul said, Christ in you is the hope of glory. When we sing or pray or act like God could get closer to us, we are denying the reality of Christ in us, and we're actually acting as if Jesus didn't come and die and resurrect. We're acting as if we still live in the old covenant. You see, back then, God's Spirit rested upon people, usually special people like warriors and judges, and he did it one at a time. But they had this prophecy through Joel, in which God said in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. God said the same through the prophet Ezekiel, even adding that I will put my spirit in you. Well, on the day of Pentecost, when the spirit descended upon the Jewish believers in an upper room, Peter declared, this is that. He said, what you're seeing is what was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. It was the spirit of God coming to live inside of people who believed. And God's spirit has never stopped and has never left, and he never will. In Acts 2.38, Peter, he says, when you believe, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, this promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. So since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit lives in believers, all believers. He can't get any closer. He won't go any farther. When people want the Holy Spirit to come closer, what they want is for him to feel closer. That's really what they're asking for. That's really what they're meaning. They're talking about a feeling. And there's a definite difference between him being close and him feeling close. Like there is with any human relationship, really. Feeling and being are not the same. Now, to be sure, it's not bad. It's not bad to want to feel close to him. I understand that. But feeling close to him, also like in a human relationship, really comes down to how much you believe the person loves you. You and I both know people who are physically close to each other, yet standing side by side are worlds apart and feel worlds apart. Maybe they're on the verge of a divorce or something. If one of the parties doesn't believe that they are loved by the other, then intimacy is hindered. They don't feel it. Same thing with you and God. He's in you. So as I've said, he can't get any closer physically. But if you don't believe that he loves you, you won't feel that he's close. Now, the good thing is you don't have to prove that you love him for him to feel close to you. He knows that you love him. After all, he put a new heart in you. Romans 5.5 says he filled you with his love. So the issue of intimacy isn't on his end. He's not worried about it. It's on ours. And this, by the way, is what James is talking about in James 4, 7, 
when it says to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He's talking about intimacy. And I know this because the verse before it says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. As I teach in my book, Shut Up Devil, the name devil means slanderer. So James says, resist the slanderer. Resist the one who lies, the one who's trying to destroy your reputation. That's what slander does. Resist the idea that you aren't forgiven or that God can't or doesn't love you. That's what the enemy is trying to slander you with. Those are his lies. Well, knowing the truth of your forgiveness, of your cleansing, of your purification of God's love, knowing the truth will draw you closer to God where you'll know his nearness, you'll feel his nearness. I talk much more about that in my teaching, The Key to Intimacy. But let me offer you something that might shift your perspective. A lot of people think that the deepest spiritual level is feeling God. Those who feel God, they are the most spiritually mature. And like I said, nothing wrong with wanting that. I love to feel God. But let me put this back in terms of a human relationship. What is better in your relationship with your husband or wife? To depend on a feeling? To know that your relationship is secure? Or just to know that it's secure? Feelings create a whole lot of mind games. If a relationship is based on feelings, then when they're away on a business trip, you might worry what they're doing. When they're having a sad day and just aren't talkative, you might worry that they've changed their mind about you. When they're upset, you might fear that they're mad at you. Isn't it better if you just know, if you just can trust? That way they can go through all the natural human emotions without you having to be worried if it means something about your relationship. I think we'd all say yes. The deepest level, if you want to call it that, in our relationships with God is the same. A relationship based on knowing is better, deeper, than one that's hinged on feeling. And with God, you can know, you can absolutely trust. He says, he won't leave you nor forsake you. He says he lives in you. Despite what you feel, see, or sense, you can know that he won't go anywhere. His word is his bond. His character will not allow him to break a promise. Now, of course, it would be great if you could just trust that. But that's not really reality. It doesn't usually happen overnight. Most of us have to be convinced of these promises. And that's the renewal of the mind. We have to be reminded of God's truths over and over and over, usually in order to get to the place where our security is based on his word and not our feelings. And this next truth about what God won't do is crucial to getting there. God won't hold your sins against you. Not from the past, not from the present, not from the future. Now, don't just take my word for it. This is what the Apostle Paul said is the result of the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.19 For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Now, allow me to illustrate this for you using a credit card. 
Most people, and I was one of them, think of sin like buying something with a credit card, buying something that gives you buyer's remorse, of course. But immediately upon a failure, we kind of imagine that the costs charged to some account that we have to pay for in one way or another. Some kind of sacrifice is required, even if it's a week or two of guilt. Something is required of us. Well, this is how it was in the Old Testament after the law of Moses was established. Their sins were charged to their account. The theological word for it is imputed. Their sins were personally imputed to each person. It wasn't like that before the law was established. But when the law was established, their sins got charged to them. Well, all the debt that they racked up was forgiven through animal sacrifice, through the shedding of blood. But just as soon as the account was forgiven, they began to rack up more debt. Like just as soon as it was forgiven. So it was this constant cycle of debt and forgiveness, debt and forgiveness, debt and forgiveness. And they could never feel secure in their relationship with God because they always believed they owed him something. That kind of transactional relationship is not what God wanted forever. So through Jesus, he changed whose account sins get charged to. Oh, sure, you still have a credit card, and you can still charge things to it, big things. But those charges aren't held against you anymore. They aren't collected in your account. They're charged to Jesus who paid for them in advance. That's the gospel truth. It's part of the identity exchange we receive with our salvation when our sin nature was cut out and we receive the nature of Christ. After all, just two verses after Paul said that God no longer counts our sins against us, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin. Here's the identity exchange. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. Here again, most of us are living as if we're in the old covenant, as if we're still having to pay for our own debt. And I get it. That's a natural way of thinking. You pay for what you buy. But this is why the gospel is called the good news, actually news nearly too good to be true. Because Jesus paid for what you buy. He paid for what you bought. He paid for what you buy. Your sins are charged to his account forever, and God is not going to rewire the system. It's a done deal. I know that this creates fear in some people that if you tell people about unlimited past, present, and future forgiveness, they might think of it as a license to sin. And that might be true if this forgiveness wasn't also accompanied with a change of heart, a change of identity in which Christians no longer want to sin. We're not slaves to sin anymore. The Bible says we're slaves to righteousness. We now have an inclination toward righteousness. Of course, we do still sin at times, but we don't want to. But it's so easy for people to make one of these fear-based, slippery slope arguments. Well, brother, if you tell people that they're forever forgiven, they'll just sin forever. Well, brother, the reality is that people are sinning whether they have a license or not. But it's also a reality that I haven't met a Christian yet that wants to sin even though they still do at times. 
So that argument is only theoretical, it's not reality. Besides, according to God's design, when people are freed of the pressure to be perfect and know that if they fall, grace will catch them, they actually end up doing better and falling less. When you know that you are forgiven, when you know that God isn't mad at you, you know that he isn't disappointed in you, you know that he hasn't changed his mind about you, then you feel closer to him, and in one way or another, that all just makes you do better. It empowers you. So fear not and rest assured, believer. God won't hold your sins against you. Belief in Jesus is what matters. And do you know what forever forgiveness means? It's the next thing God won't do. God won't punish you. How could he? There's nothing to punish. There's nothing for God to be mad about. When he sees you, he doesn't see a sinful you under some robe of righteousness. Like I said earlier, your salvation wasn't about you getting new clothing. It was about you getting a new identity. It was about you being made right and about you staying made right. I feel like I've got to get specific here. Maybe this will free some of you. I'm going to speak right into some of you right here. The symptoms you battle are not God's punishment for something you did wrong. Your lack of cash is not God denying you because you did wrong. That disaster or misfortune is not an act of God against you for something you did wrong. Some things are just the natural effects of a fallen world and a fallen system that we live in. But none of them are because God's mad or God's bad. Hear that. Please hear that. Like I said, this is a word for someone right now. This is right to you. None of what you are going through is because God's mad or God's bad. And none of what you are going through is because God's testing you. That's the fifth thing God won't do. God won't test you. Not in order to verify that you're pure enough for heaven or good enough to bless. Again, you were forgiven. You were made new. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says you're washed, justified, and sanctified. A trinity of cleansing that happened immediately upon your belief. And as I also said, the Holy Spirit moved right into you immediately upon your belief. So if you are pure enough for God to live in you, then you are pure enough to live with God forever. He doesn't need you to pass any test, jump through any hoops, or survive any disasters to prove that. He knows it because he did the purification for you. And God doesn't question the quality of his own work. You are his handiwork through and through. And he knows it. Now, I know that there are some verses that people use to claim otherwise. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 is one of them. Paul says, For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. 
Some version says he alone tests our hearts. And that's where people get this idea of testing from. Well, first you have to know that the word examines or tests was a choice of certain English translators because different versions say different things. There's a version that says that God is proving our hearts. That makes it mean something differently, doesn't it? Another one says God who knows us through and through, who knows our hearts. Again, different than testing. And in context, that's really what Paul was getting at. He's saying the same kind of thing as when you or I say, I don't care what so-and-so thinks, God knows my heart. That's what he's saying. Besides, in the sentence before, Paul said we speak as messengers approved by God. Paul already knew that he was approved. He didn't have to pass some tests in order to be approved. He was approved. And so are you. Because of all the things I've already gone through in this message, you have God's approval. He's not asking you to pass a test to get it, nor to get any blessing. Ephesians 1.3 says God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing because we are united with Christ. Jesus is the requirement in the new covenant. If you have Jesus, you have what God requires to be blessed, what God requires to be approved, what God requires to be pure. But what about what James says? That the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's James 1.3. Check out the context. James says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. James doesn't say that God sends the test. He's talking about the problems in life. The verse right before it says, So, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. In the natural, in the flesh, faith kind of works like a muscle. The more it is ripped with heavy lifting, the stronger it becomes. Not for God's sake. You're good with him whether you're strong or puny. But here on earth, trials and problems troubles of any kind have a way of growing and strengthening you so that you can face harder things in the future. That's what James means. Not that God is sending you the test to grow your faith. Is the world, the circumstances of life, they're the ones throwing things at you, and those things are going to naturally make you stronger and develop you to handle other things that come at you from the world in the future not from God. Okay. Quick recap of the five things that God won't do for Christians. Five things you don't have to pray about or worry about. God won't disown you. He can't because you're his adopted child. God won't get any closer to you or go any farther because he's in you. He won't hold your sins against you because Jesus already paid for them. He won't punish you because Jesus took the punishment once and for all. And he won't test you because he knows your quality. He's the one who made you new and made you right. 
He's the one who has promised to meet your every need, every need, not according to your every deed, but as Philippians 4.19 says, according to his riches and glory by Christ. My friend, it's always all about Jesus. Well, you know, as I said in this message, being secure with God has nothing to do with feelings. It's based on knowing. But I know that that isn't built overnight. Often there are a lifetime of lies that you have to unlearn before you can walk by faith and not by sight. And that's what I'm here to help you with. And the tool that I created to help you is my Think on These Things 30-Day Scripture Journal. When it comes to renewing your mind, it's not just about reading Bible verses from a page. You really have to identify it with what the verses say about you. And that's how I designed this journal. I selected 30 days worth of grace-based scriptures. And beside each scripture are journaling prompts to help you think through the truth in a way that changes your mind to change your life. Think on these things, 30 days of power thoughts to boost your confidence and courage. You may order this journal right now from my website at kylewinkler.org journal. And there's a discount when you order five or more. So get copies for your entire family or your group. Again, the website is kylewinkler.org journal. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil Show. Remember, God is good and he is for you. And we're here for you too. We're here every week on my website at kylewinkler.org, on our podcast, and all over social media. Don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. I'll see you next time.